Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. It is a blessing to be with you in spirit this morning. I know that we are around the throne of the same God. I uh, sent out an email last night, and there's a, there's a possibility it was later that some of you may not have seen it. Uh, for those of you who would like to join us, and we're going to have a church-wide uh, Zoom uh, uh, afterwards. It was great having one, one, one last week. Our brother Brian is going to, to moderate it this week. If you don't have that uh, a link, please uh, let us know But a church-wide Zoom at 1230. I uh, also would just like to give a shout-out of thanks to our children's ministry crew who have faithfully served these the, the these past months and if you need a uh, link to, uh, to 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 join that a children's ministry for for elementary age kids please uh, uh, contact us at CBC uh, admin at gmail.com CBC admin at gmail.com the uh, coronavirus pandemic illustrates what we all know our world is in desperate need of change. It's a world in which disease is rampant, and not just this one, and viruses mutate in ways that if you read everything, it's, it's alarming. It's a world which allows abortions as an essential service. It's a world in which the elderly are dying alone in, in nursing homes. And some speak of them as kind of expendable to get the economy going. It's a world in which injustice continues to happen even now. And where many, and where they're supposed to be sheltering at homes, we know their homes are not safe places to shelter. It's a world in which we still have to deal with what we see in the mirror. And of course, there are the physical uh, flaws we see as we look at our receding hairline or, or our acne, but there's also what we see in the mirror of God's law as we see our sin and our selfishness. In this world, we still continue to succumb to various ways in which we're tempted. We can be lazy and independent. We can be consumed with what people think of us. We sneak around satisfying our lust. We get angry with our spouses, impatient with our kids. We worry, we wish we had what others have, and we grumble when God provides for us. The coronavirus has shown how fragile our world is and how fragile we are, how fragile life is and society is. How fragile our economies are, how fragile our identities are, and what we put our worth in. God has shined an exposing spotlight on humanity. And no, just like we already knew, we're not okay. For many, the longing has been, pri has, has been primarily focused on sheltering at home, ending, to try to get back to some kind of, uh, of normalcy in life. And for many, for good reasons. But for others, we realize that the true satisfaction of this longing for change will only be found elsewhere when the very nature of creation is changed by its creator, Jesus Christ, when Christ transforms this world. While this virus has exposed how, how weak we are, 
God's word this morning will reveal how powerful Jesus is. And I'm looking forward to it. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, and reigning in heaven, has the power to transform. One day Jesus will transform this broken earth, but today he can fix our broken worship. We've been seeing the sufficiency of Jesus, his sufficiency to save, and his sufficiency to change as we've looked at the supremacy of Jesus in in the book of, of Colossians. Two weeks ago, we looked at Colossians 1, verses 15 and 20. I want to read those because we're going to see this Christ revealed in the Gospel of John this morning. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he will him so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And this morning we're going to see a glimpse of Jesus' glory, which reveals his ability to transform. And that's what uh, Paul's talking about at the end of that Colossians passage, reconciling all things to himself, bringing bringing all things in submission to Christ, fixing the universe. We're going to see a glimpse of Jesus' glory to transform. And so I'm going to look real quickly here at the roadmap for this morning. It, 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 it'll be a little different. I'm, I'm going to look first at John 2, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to recognize the glory of Christ as we walk through that text. In verse 11, it says that Jesus manifested his glory. So we're just going to walk through the text, and at the end, we're going to see his glory. We're going to recognize it, but then we're going to spend a few minutes reflecting on the glory there, and I'll have some of my meditations, and really, you could add your own to it. We're just going to reflect on the glory of Christ, and last, by God's grace, we'll leave this morning relying more on the glorious Christ. So let's first look at the glory of Christ. We're going to recognize the glory of Christ in verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read, read a couple of verses and, and say a few things about them. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, Mary, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, when John says on the third day, pushes us to look back into the events of chapter one. The author, John, has been carefully tracking the days, the days that have led up to this first miracle of Jesus. It was almost a week prior when John the Baptist saw Jesus. And he announced that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, as, as, as we read through John 1, two of John's disciples leave John and start following Jesus. One, one, one is Andrew and the other is an unnamed disciple, which would lead us to guess that is probably John uh, who, who, who wrote this book, The Gospel of John. As the week goes, Andrew searches out Simon, later named Peter, to come and follow Jesus. And Philip joins as well, who then in turn uh, finds, finds Nathaniel. So it's a week of Jesus being announced as the Lamb of God, a week of Jesus gaining his first disciples. 
This wedding that Jesus goes to is in in Cana of Galilee. It's in in it's an it's a insignificant valley, village. It's about eight miles north of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and you can imagine it about halfway between the 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 the, the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of, of 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 Galilee in the hill country. That Jesus and Mary were both invited as guests. Uh, leads us to think that, that that this was at least a family friend that was getting married, if 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 not perhaps a relative. I'll read, continue reading verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." Now weddings could last a, a week, and it was the financial responsibility of the groom at a wedding to 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 provide for this week long feast. It would have been a tremendous embarrassment, a social shame to run out of wine. It was potentially a, 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 a matter of legal liability. Someone could get sued for failing to provide for the wedding feast. It also indicates for us that this isn't the first day of the wedding. They likely wouldn't run out of wine on the first day. Now, you may be wondering, and depending on your background, you may be wondering if this was, was alcoholic wine or was it grape juice? Well, the word for drunk freely in verse 10 uh, is is it can 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 also be translated. And we see this in our note in our Bibles as as have become drunk. And it's the same word we see in Ephesians five eighteen, where it says, "Do not get drunk with wine." So this is talking about alcoholic wine. Now, wine in the ancient world was 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 diluted with water to something less strong than American beer. You could still get drunk on it, but you you would have to drink more of it, depending on your weight and, and how much drinking you've done. The, 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 the undiluted version of this wine was much stronger, uh, and people drank it, but, but, but it, it would also have more shame with it, or, or, or it, was, it was less approved of as, 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 the, as the diluted wine, which is probably what they were drinking here. Now, we can't be certain why Mary came to Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus had done no miracles. It says in verse 11 that this is the beginning of his signs. Jesus had done no miracles up to this point. It's possible that Mary was simply bringing a concern, a burden of her heart to, to share with Jesus. It is likely that at this point, uh, uh, Joseph, Mary's husband, had, had, had passed away. Perhaps the widowed Mary had grown accustomed to to relying on her firstborn son. Perhaps she was just coming and it was just a matter of fact. Oh no, Jesus, did you hear that, that the groom ran out of wine? Or maybe it was coming asking for help. Jesus, do you think we can spare some of the money we, we, we've put away for our family to, 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 to help to save the groom, this, these friends of ours from their embarrassment? But on the other hand, and I think that this is probably more likely, although we can't be certain. Perhaps Mary's heard about John the Baptist public drawing attention to Christ and saying that this is the one that he saw God's spirit land on. Perhaps hearing that this is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Perhaps seeing Jesus come with these new disciples, maybe some of whom she hadn't met. And you could only imagine that this is perhaps the moment she'd been waiting for for 30 years. Because it, it was over 30 years ago when she had been visited by an angel. Listen what the angel says in Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb. Jesus would not have a biological father. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And perhaps now is when Mary's thinking, well, there's a need, and Jesus has started gathering followers. Maybe now's the time. Maybe, maybe Jesus will show what I've always known about him, that this is the promised one. This is the son of the most high. In verse 4 of John 2, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus' reply is shocking, though woman in the English isn't as rude as it sounds. Woman in Greek could be said could be said with affection. But woman wasn't a normal way to address your mother. You, you, you could think of someone offering to help someone older who they don't know. So someone offering to help someone older they don't know. And they might go, 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 go up into them and say, ma'am, can I help you with your bags? Warm, but not the way you would speak to your mom. There's, 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 there's a polite distance in the way Jesus speaks here. As Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry, he enters into a new relationship with his mother Mary in a way that makes her a stranger to him. He says, well, what does that have to do with us? Or, 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 or in the Greek, it says, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? And often we, we, we hear this in, in the Gospels of demons speaking to Jesus. And it is translated in Matthew uh, 8.29. What business do we have with each other, son of God? Like demons are saying, why are you bothering us? It is a way to put distance between two parties. This is not a concern we share in common. While not rude, this is at least a, 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 a soft rebuke to Mary. Something like, ma'am, your problem is not my problem. I am concerned about other things. Now, Mary must know that Jesus is here on earth on a mission. He is here to do his father's will. She had to understand this from this point forward. In John 5, 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. And then he says, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is on his father's mission. Family pressure couldn't disrupt God's will. Ultimately, Jesus was willing to do the same thing he asked of his followers and the same thing he calls of people still to this day. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And this is such a good example of that kind of hatred. It's not a despising. It's not saying, oh, I can't stand my mom. This, this, this is realizing I have to be about someone else's business now. I have to be about my father's business or with our relationship to Christ. I have a new Lord. It's not that Jesus didn't care for his mother. Uh, the next time that Jesus' mother's mentioned is in John 19, verses 26 to 27. He's from the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, John, 
He said to his mother, woman, ma'am, behold your son. This, this, this man, John, is now your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold, John, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took Mary into his own household. So even there, God, God the son, Jesus, was caring for his earthly mother. So it wasn't that he rejected her, but he was showing her whose business he was about. He says, my hour has not yet come. In the book of John, the hour refers to the time of Jesus's glorification. And it's the whole period of his being crucified, his being resurrected from the dead, and his being exalted to God's right hand after after ascending into the heavens. It is his glorification. And so at this point, Jesus says, my hour hasn't come. My glorification is going to follow later, but it's not now. Finally, as we read through John, John 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And from that point, the, the, the narrative of the book of John goes to Jesus uh, being crucified and then resurrected. In John 17, verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Right before his crucifixion, the, the, the night of his cruci crucifixion, Jesus prays, Father, the Son has come. I mean, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Show who I am so that you receive the glory. But it wasn't time yet for that. Jesus says to Mary, Mary, Mother, Ma'am, it's not time yet to fulfill all those Old Testament promises. It's not yet time for me to take the throne of David. It's not yet time for me to bring in the Messianic age. In verse 5, Mary and, 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 and her response is, is surprising. She doesn't leave crushed. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And Mary's response here is awesome. The, the, the commentator D.A. Carson says, in chapter 2, verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and, and, and is reproached. She is corrected by Jesus. In 2, verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. Mary hasn't interrupted Jesus as refusing to act. But she does understand that she is not going to be in charge of Jesus being glorified. Jesus hasn't promised to do anything, but she still submits to him. And this is what the needy do. The needy keep after Jesus. And really, there, there, there are several examples of this in the gospel where, where you could take Jesus to say, no, I'm not going to help you. But those who are needy, they continue after Christ. And I would encourage you, if, if you and your relationship, if, if you haven't yet been saved and, and you're still like, well, 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 has God forgiven me yet? Keep going after Jesus Christ. He, he requires you to come in faith to him and he is willing to hear your plea for for forgiveness. Continue in faith. And that's totally what, what, what Mary does here. She commands the servants to do whatever Jesus says. Now, the, the, the uh, John continues in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And so these stone water pots were, were, were massive. This, the uh, six of them could hold 120 to 150 ga ga gallons of water altogether. If you just want to imagine their size a little bit, uh, imagine four gallons of, uh, of, of milk on the ground, kind of set two, two by two, and imagine that stack five or six high. 
just gives a quick picture of 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 how big or six yeah yeah it's five or six high that that's a lot of gallons these stone pots were massive and there were six of them it says that they were for the jewish custom of of purification and this would be to 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 cleanse guests be before eating water would be poured over their their hands and this was according to jewish customs mark 7 3 mentions these customs it says for the pharisees and all the jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands thus observing the 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 traditions of the elders well i imagine our uh uh future generations are receiving new new traditions of hand washings even now Jesus said to the servants in verse 7, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them, them up to the brim. Jesus is not recorded as giving any reason to the servants. The servants simply follow followed Mary's instructions to do what Jesus said. To the brim emphasizes that there was no more room for anything else in these giant stone pots. It wasn't as if someone's going to, to, to go over and pour some of a uh, of some concentrated wine in there. They're filled to the brim. And John makes that point clear. One commentator said that this process could have taken hours. And you could have Im imagined in the back room the nervousness as uh, they're running out of wine, or maybe there's, 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 there's just none left, or just what's on the table. We don't know how far the, the well was or how much was left in these stone pots. Jesus says in verse 8, and he said to them, draw some out now, draw some of that water out now, or maybe as we'll see it becomes wine, and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to, to him, and, and the head waiter, or the ESV has the master of the feast, is, 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 is the person in charge of the catering. He was the one in charge of bringing out the next batch of wine. And we can only speculate what the servants must have been thinking as they as they were doing this were, were, were they drawing out water that had already become wine or would it become wine as they poured it out we 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 don't know but listen in verse 9 when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine some point in this process whether in those giant pots which which is what i would think and did not know where it came from but the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the uh, bridegroom and this is almost a funny scene here the head waiter has no idea at all about jesus's involvement all he knows as he sips this wine is this is really good wine and what we see here is this miracle being ver verified by an unbiased observer who so far hadn't been part of the story has no idea what is going on the wine is of such superior quality that the head waiter has to compliment the, 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 the bridegroom for, for bringing in this amazingly good wine. But granted, he's confused by it. And we see in verse 10 the reason why he's confused as, as, as he brings the bridegroom to him. And the head waiter says to the bridegroom in verse 10, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, when they've started having too much, then serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. The head waiter saying, you've got this backward groom. Why did you hold back the good stuff? The people aren't going to appreciate this now. 
and the groom has no idea what is going on. He probably just smiles and nods and uh, thinks that he got lucky somehow. But the servants know, and the disciples know where this wine came from. John brings a conclusion for us in verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is a sign, and Carson writes, that a sign is a significant display of power that point, that, 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 that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith, that many people saw, well, and here it's just a few, but including other signs, more people saw the sign being done than, 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 than appreciate what the sign is signifying. What the sign is doing is showing God at work. It says that they manifested his glory. This sign manifested Jesus' glory. It revealed Jesus' glory. It made known Jesus' glory. Now, God's glory in the Old Testament was, was, was the visible display of his attributes. It, it's God revealing himself in creation in such a way that people are blown away by, 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 by this bright and terrifying and awesome and sometimes loud and fire-filled display of God's glory. We saw God's glory on Sinai and leading Israel in in the desert and God's glory filling the tabernacle and filling the temple. And Isaiah saw his glory in Isaiah chapter six. In the book of John, and, and I don't think that any of us guess this, we, we supremely see Jesus's glory at the hour of his glorification, when he's crucified, when he's resurrected, and when he's exalted at God's right hand. But that doesn't mean that Christ isn't manifesting his glory here. He's manifesting his glory behind the scenes. You, you, you can imagine him kind of in a back storeroom of a restaurant manifesting his glory to just a handful. Nothing is said about how the servants respond, but his disciples believe in him. The disciples saw the sign and they understood. They perceived Jesus' glory. It's just a glimpse of his glory, but they perceive his glory. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was yet, but it was a beginning. Their, their eyes were beginning to open. They had started following Jesus, and, and, and now their eyes are open a little bit wider. And maybe they're like, whoa, what have we got ourselves into? Who is this? And their understanding is, is going to keep expanding. After the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Thomas is going to say, my Lord and my God. We see this same John reading, who wrote the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation, seeing Jesus revealed in his glory. And Jesus has to tell John, his friend, to, 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 to not be afraid. In ways, I think the disciples are still continuing to understand Jesus' glory even now. That's a great eternity we have, we have to look forward to. Often others saw the same sign. We just don't know how the servants responded, but they don't perceive his glory. And so the question is, do you recognize the glory of Christ in this sign? And that is what we have, have recognized together. We've recognized the glory of Christ. And now we just want to reflect on the glory of Christ. We've recognized the glory of Christ, and now we want to reflect on the glory of Christ 
of Christ. See, Jesus' miracles reveal who Jesus is. In John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh, the Word referring to the eternal God, the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see a glimpse of that total glory in this miracle that Jesus did. So let's reflect on what that glory of Jesus is. What does we feel about Jesus? And, 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 and I think we're going to see here, and I think you could add to it, but I saw five things it revealed about Jesus' glory. And the first is it reveals a glimpse of Jesus' generosity. It reveals a glimpse of Jesus' generosity, of the grace of God. See, the number and the size of the stone pots it, it, it gives the story of John a, a, a ring of authenticity. But throughout John's gospel, we see in miracles that Jesus goes above and beyond what he had to do. That after he feeds the 5,000, there's 12 loaves of bread and fish left. Or, or, or I think it's, it says bread. See, these, the fact that there's these six giant pots, it's more than just historical details. Jesus didn't have to make so much wine. It, it, we would guess that the feast is, is at least on the second half by, by, by now. It's getting near the end of the feast. And it's likely that there was a surplus of wine. Perhaps there's even enough to sell after, and we don't know. But what we do see is that Jesus, Jesus lavishly he lavishly pro provides at this wedding feast. We see how generous Jesus is. Ephesians 3 verse 20 describes Jesus. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. See, Jesus is able to do more than we ask or think. That is encouraging to us as we need a Jesus who transforms and we need, we live in a world that needs to be transformed. Jesus' supply of grace is generous. We do not serve a stingy master. Listen to Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come to Jesus to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We just see a little glimpse of it. It's not the main point of the story, but we see the generosity of Jesus. He is a gracious Savior. We see a glimpse of the, the generosity of Jesus. We also see a glimpse of Jesus' wisdom. See, Jesus' miracle here reveals the precision of, with which Jesus obeys the Father. See, Jesus didn't just make any wine. And the miracle uh, highlights the quality of the wine that Jesus makes. Jesus made excellent wine. The, the head waiter surprised by the quality of this wine. Now, could you imagine this? And it still would have been a miracle if, if the uh, head waiter sips the wine. It's like, oh, I thought... We uh, were out. Or imagine even worse, if he sips the wine, it's like, oh, like what is this? See, we would have realized something was wrong about this miracle. Really, something would be wrong with our Savior. But saints, we can have confidence that Jesus rules with specificity. 
Jesus rules with precision. See, Jesus is an acting, an eternally planned and perfect plan. Job 12, 13 says, With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. The attributes of God the Father belong to God the Son. Jesus Christ is wise. Isaiah 40, verses 13 to 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Jesus doesn't need to be taught how to make wine, and he doesn't need to be taught how to be how to make something eternally glorious out of the mess of our lives or out of the mess of this world. We can trust Jesus to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. We can trust him to rule with excellence and to bring to completion what he's begun without misstep or mistake. We can be encouraged that Jesus makes excellent wine because he is wise. It's just a glimpse of his generosity. It's just a glimpse of his wisdom, these, these small details. We also see a glimpse of Jesus' compassion. In this miracle, and Jesus does so in other miracles, Jesus doesn't in intervene to save someone from blindness or deafness. He doesn't intervene here to save someone who's paralyzed. There's no one who has leprosy calling out unclean. The disciples are not on a boat afraid they're going to die in a storm. There's no demon-possessed people here. He doesn't even forgive anyone of their sin. Jesus intervenes to save a couple from experiencing the shame of not having enough to be hospitable to their guest. Jesus doesn't draw attention to himself and away from the groom here. He could have, but he doesn't. He lets the groom have the honor. Jesus may not save you from shame in this life, but he does care about the shame that you carry. And sometimes that is the shame that we have for our sins, and sometimes it's the shame for what others have done or treated us. Jesus cares about embarrassment. He's a compassionate Savior. I love this about Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been attempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus bore shame. He bore the shame of our sin. He is sympathetic for those who have shame. He's a compassionate Savior. Again, we just see a small glimpse of his compassion um, put on display in an everyday struggle of a couple who doesn't have enough to meet ends or to make ends meet. We see a little glimpse of Jesus's generosity, of his wisdom, of his compassion. Isn't he a good savior? We also see a glimpse of Jesus's authority. Jesus has no fear. As that water is taken to, 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 to the head waiter, and it's my confidence that, that, that everything in those giant stone pots became wine, but he has no fear. He's not afraid of coming up short. Jesus knows who he is. In John 1, 3, it speaks of Jesus. 
all things. And this verse just, just, just does away with any false teaching that Jesus is any kind of created being. Jesus, uh, John says, all things came into being through him. All things, everything created came into being through Jesus. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. Nothing comes into being that has come into being without Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 16, we saw the same thing. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And Jesus has authority over everything. Jesus made water out of nothing. The water you see in the ocean, the water you drink when you turn on your faucet, that water was made by Jesus Christ. And he can just as effortlessly make wine out of water. I uh, did a, a, a little studying on, on what is the, 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 uh, uh, the molecular composition of wine, and one website describes it as this. An average red wine will contain 86% water. So we know what that is. It, it is H2O made by Jesus. But also, uh, and 12% ethyl uh, 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 alcohol, glycerol, also known as glycerin, makes up around 1% with a variety of acids making up an additional 0.4%. All of those acid and glycerin and ethyl alcohol made by Jesus. Isn't that awesome? But we're not done. Compounds referred to as tannins and, and phenolics comprise just 0.1% of your average red wine. 0.1%. But it's to these we'll look when examining the contributing compounds to color and flavor. So 0.1% of the molecules in wine give it its color and flavor. Now this shows us just a little bit of the authority that Jesus has. God the Son has complete control over creation. That is the authority that he has. There are no rogue molecules. What he created, he controls. That is true of viruses, and that is true of 1.1% of a cup of wine. When that table waiter, when that head waiter sipped that wine, that 0.1% that made it good wine, that was made by Jesus. Jesus has the authority over the 0.1% in a cup of wine, and he has authority over every detail of the universe. Our God reigns. It's just a little glimpse of Jesus' authority. And in this miracle, we see a glimpse of his generosity, his grace, of his wisdom, of his compassion to this couple uh, who would have been shamed. We also see his authority. Well, we, we saw his authority. And now we're going to see his humility and the eternal submission of God the Son to God the Father. We see a glimpse of Jesus's humility and his eternal submission. This is not how any of us would have chosen as our first miracle. It's not a grand entrance. Hardly anyone knows what is going on here. He doesn't set straight the head waiter when he compliments the groom. Jesus doesn't say, hey, wait, that miracle, you know, me just, me just exercising my, my eternal godness and changing that 0.1% of that wine that you just enjoyed, that was to manifest my glory. He doesn't do that. 
And think about this, this place, Cana. One author writes, it is easy to miss it. That glory was not revealed at the imperial palace in Rome. He could have marched to Rome and done a miracle there. Or at Herod's temple in, in, in Jerusalem, the author writes. Or at, or at the colonnaded Acropolis in Athens. But here, in an impoverished village of Cana, nestled away in an obscure corner of, of Galilee. How unlike us. See, Jesus is the eternal Son, doing the eternal Father's will on the timeline of the Father, submitting as he always has for the glory of the Father. This is the Son of God doing exactly what the Father has decreed, but it's also Jesus as the Son of Man, doing what Adam didn't, listening to God and obeying God. The Father sent Jesus to serve and here in his first miracle, Jesus serves. Mark 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 verses 6 through 8 talks about the humility of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to what was rightfully his equality with God but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, as all you would see when you saw Jesus at this feast. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Even after his resurrection, and John shows this, Jesus, the son of man, is there on the shore cooking breakfast for his disciples. It's just a beautiful picture of Jesus's humility and how he is always submitted to God the Father. These are just a few glimpses of Jesus's glory and 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 perhaps uh, uh, around the lunch table you can talk about what are what are other glimpses of his glory you see here. As we see these these glimpses of glory we reflect on the glory of Christ that we've recognized as he manifested himself in the sign and what are we to do with this? We should rely upon the glorious Christ. We should rely upon the glorious Christ, and particularly in this context, rely upon the glorious Christ who will transform this world and transform those, those who believe in him. See, for Jews reading the Gospel of John, Jews who were well acquainted with the Old Testament, and, and, and really it was, it was most likely that the Gospel of John was was written to, 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 to Jews probably after the the, 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 the the temple of Jerusalem was already destroyed, but Jews who had not yet believed in Jesus Christ. For, for those Jews who knew the Old Testament well, this miracle would have been a, a particular impacting miracle to hear. See, wine was, was, and it still is in a sense, a symbol of, of, of God's blessing, of, of having more than enough. But for them, it was a symbol of the messianic age, of the prophesied Christ. And there's, there, there's more references than this, but listen to Amos 9, verses 13 to 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. So they can't even keep up with a bountiful harvest. When the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. 
Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and, the, and make gardens and eat their fruit. See, wine was a symbol of the messianic age to come. It was the, and, and as they read about this miracle, and, and, and maybe the disciples saw a little glimpse of it here, the fulfillment of God's promises were at hand. The messianic age had arrived. Now, what may not have jumped out to the disciples then, although maybe is noticed by us as we read and by, by, by those readers over 40 year, years later, maybe longer. Jesus turned water in stone pots used for purification into messianic wine. And I don't want to make too much of that. It may just be, be, be a detail. But Jesus has already been announced by John, by John the Baptist in the first chapter of John, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here we see these, 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 these pots used for purification according to Jewish ritual, now being transformed, the water in them, into wine. The old system was being replaced by a new Savior. Empty ritual had been transformed into, into true righteousness. Now, this is, again, just a glimpse, but it's a picture of how powerful this Jesus is. See, the signs of John's gospel reveal who Jesus is. And, and Jesus and John at the end of John's gospel, John at the end of John's gospel, talks about why these signs are here in John 20, verses 30 to 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but he's, some of these signs have been talked about, but these have been written, these signs, including this first sign, this, this, this beginning sign of changing water into wine, this sign has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This sign, this changing of water to wine is written so that you can have life in Jesus Christ, so that you can believe in him. See, we are a people in need of being transformed. And we, need, and we live in a world that's desperately in need of being transformed. Jesus Christ, this Jesus revealed here in the Gospel of John, the same one, that, the same Jesus that, 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 that Paul spoke about in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This Jesus is powerful enough to fix this broken world. And he will. One day, Jesus will return. And there will be no more diseases. There will be no more abuse. There will be no more injustice. All things will be reconciled to himself. Everything in the universe brought in submission to his feet. Some willingly and some still in rebellion, having to admit that Jesus is Yahweh, Lord over all. Jesus is powerful enough to fix the world, but he's also powerful enough for you to change you this day. For those of you who have believed in Jesus Christ, have, who have put faith in Jesus Christ, for some of you, these, 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 these now going on 11 weeks of being sheltered at home have been exposing and you have seen sin in yourself. And I want to encourage you, that Jesus is powerful to, to transform you. Jesus will keep changing you. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
He will transform you from irritated and impatient to patient. He will transform you to angry and shaking your fist at God, not submitting to him, to, to humble. He will transform you from discontent to thankful. Jesus will transform you from coveting to grateful. Jesus will transform you to la lazy, to laboring in God's kingdom. Jesus will transform you from selfish to serving. He will transform you from self-focused to Christ-centered. He will transform you from longing for the approval of men, for being satisfied with approval from God. He will transform you from performing rituals to pursuing righteousness. And he will transform us, in a sense, from water to wine. This is who Jesus is. The glorious Jesus revealed here in John 2 in this, in this simple backroom sign is the transforming Jesus. And so we must rely upon this glorious Christ. Transformation will be found in no one else. No one else has the power to fix broken people. And the whole Bible will put, point you to no one else except this Jesus Christ. So go to him needy and willing to obey. Some of you listening this morning have not yet experienced Christ's transforming power. I encourage you, as John encouraged you, believe in this sign. This is why it's written. This is why it's recorded. Yes, for those of us who are being transformed, to keep being transformed as we continue in faith, but also for those who have never believed to put their hope in Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus as the one who can transform your life. Come to him needy, saying, I, I, I put hopes in other places, but I am done. Only Jesus can change me. Come to him sorrowful. Come to him saying, God, I have disobeyed you in so many ways, but I am done. I am sick of that sin which displeases you. And come to him submitting. Come to him willing to do what he says. Come to him believing that he is who he says he who he is. Come to him believing that he manifested his glory. Come to him believing that you can go to him to be changed for his glory. Not to make you a better person, but so that he will receive the eternal praise. In John 1.16, in the previous chapter, John said in really language that reminds us of, of what Paul says in the book of Colossians. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. In this powerful Jesus Christ, in this generous Jesus Christ, in this wise Jesus Christ, in this compassionate Jesus Christ, in this powerful and authoritative Jesus Christ, in this humble and eternally submitted Jesus Christ, is the grace that you need if you go to him. So whether you have already been saved or whether you need to be saved, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, go to this glorious Jesus Christ who changes water into wine. Let's pray. Now, Father, you are indeed wonderful, and we thank you for this eternal plan of salvation, that even before creation, even before you created all things in your Son and through your Son and for your Son, you had this plan to bring glory to yourself in him, 
and you chose people in him and now father this is this this gospel is how you you reconcile sinners to yourself and how you continue to transform the sinners you've reconciled father may christ exalted uh, and, and, and it's not in my words, but in the words of this gospel. May Christ exalted be transforming people today and in this upcoming week. In Jesus' name, amen.